Welcome to this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Today we'll be featuring a master class by Columbia Professor Joanne Bainey on strategies for answering tough questions. Professor Bainey teaches strategic communications at both SEPA and the Columbia Business School and is the author of The Guide to Interpersonal Communications, a book published by Prentice Hall. She'll be talking today about strategies for handling tough questions at press conferences and other events. Let's go and talk about audience analysis, because this actually gets into, into thinking about who you're, who you're talking to and how they may be different. Most people do not do this very well. They, it's not that they're not thoughtful, it's, it's that they are busy. And audience analysis takes a lot of time. It takes time not only from a personal perspective of being thoughtful and empathetic, but it also requires you, if you do it well, you need to ask a lot of questions and you need to consider things in ways that may be uncomfortable for you to consider. You have to think of things from perspectives that may be um, challenging for you to consider. It's hard work to do a good, uh, good audience analysis. And it is, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of reading about how technology, you probably do too, technology is going to be taking over our world and machines are going to be, you know, doing all the work and what are we going to do? Well, what they've identified that machines can't do yet, where we, the humans still have an edge, <laughs> and that is empathy. <laughs> And the audience, the essence of audience analysis is empathy, is thinking about the perspective of the people that you're going to be speaking to or writing to or speaking with and thinking about how they are going to absorb the information and how you can make it most accessible and, uh, again, persuasive to them. I, when I came here today, I didn't think I was going to be electronically captured, but take a look at what's going on, right? Camera. Recording device, microphones, everything that I say is, not, is intended for you, but who is my unintended audience? It's, uh, it's, I don't know who it could be. It could be anybody. So I have a secondary audience that is um, really kind of unknown to me, but it could, it could be anywhere. And we're going to talk in just a few moments about the impact of nonverbal and vocal communication, which is hampered by a lock, uh, if there's an electronic filter. So that's absolutely true. Um, and, um, and then also there's that, the possibility that it will be captured, it will be saved. That, I mean, we all have to face that nowadays, right? I mean, anybody could be recording us at any time. People have cell phones and they're... So it's just a reality of our world now that we, you know, the idea of, um, of a private communication that may not exist uh, again in, you know, in some other, it's not captured, it's really just not part of our public life anymore. We have to be very, very mindful of that. Anybody else, what, any other questions that you would, if I said to you, um, you know, I'd really like you to go down the hall and give a talk about Brazil to, uh, you know, down the hall. Can you, can you do that for me? Then you'd probably be thinking, well, who am I talking to, right? So what questions would you want me to answer? What would you ask me? What is our goal? What is your goal? Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do they want to know? Yeah. What else would you want? What would you ask me? What kind of, what 
What kind of information What kind of information are they interested in? Their age? Yeah, what if I said, oh, it's just a bunch of kin kindergartners, <laughs> right? Right, you'd want to know that. Or if what I said, it's a bunch of geriatrics from the, the old folks home at the corner. Yes, yes, that's right, yeah. Um, Do they have um, special Very good. Yeah. What if I What if I said, by the way, they're um, they all speak Chinese, <laughs> right? They don't speak English or you know Portuguese, right? Put some benefits. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think the audience will agree or disagree with what I'm saying. So if they tend to disagree, I have to prepare better arguments. Very good. Yeah. How do they feel about the topic? Yeah. And how do they feel about you? Really, these are really good. So what I want to share with you is a system, because there's so many questions. You can see that you know if you if you think about it, there's just so many bits of information that you'd want to know. So what I want to share with you is the questions that I would ask, because these questions it basically ensures that you don't miss anything. When I share these questions with you, I want to reinforce that asking the questions is not enough. You actually have to dig really deep to get the answers. But nevertheless, here they are. Uh, first question, well, we'll just go from one, two, three, four. The first one is, who are they? This is the most basic audience analysis question. It's probably one that all of you would have figured out. Who are they? Uh, what is their age? What is the gender breakdown? What is their uh, level of education? Uh, what are they, uh, what are their shared goals or shared values? What are they like as decision makers? Right? Who, who are they? What's often forgotten in the who are they question is not the people in the room, but it's something we've already touched upon, is the secondary audience. The secondary audience is not just the people who are in the room, the intended audience, but who else might hear about what you say. So the primary audience, just to make it very real, the, my primary audience today, this is actually an interesting you know, way to think about it. Who's my primary audience today? You are, right? These people right here at this table. Who is my secondary audience? I have secondary audience members in the room. Who are they? Maria, Malu, who else? Scott, secondary audience member, right? He's here. The caterers, right? Nicholas, uh, Augustine was here a moment ago. They are secondary audience members. Why? Because my message today is not intended for them. And yet, they're going to hear about it. What impact might that have on me? Um, Why would I care that Maria's here? Maybe they will disseminate your ideas. Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe she goes and tells Bill Emick, who's my boss. Right? She's the conduit to Bill Emick. I need to be careful. <laughs> and we have podcasts too. Yes. So this is the very important audience. Yes. Today you have internet and what we say can go to everywhere. Yes. Well, exactly. So in that sense, like I have a sense of who these people might connect to, right? But with this, 
I have no idea. I have no idea. So, <laughs> so secondary audience is a really, again, powerful thing to consider. When you, uh, you know, in this case, this is, uh, you know, usually when, we, when we're talking to people, it's not recorded, so that's an unusual circumstance. But when we send an email, it feels private. It's obviously not. You know, that they say don't ever put anything in an email that you wouldn't want either your mother to see or see on the cover of the New York Times. And guess what? Donald J. Trump. Yeah, it was on the cover of the New York Times <laughs> yesterday. On the front page of the New York Times. I mean, it really could not be more reinforcing for this lesson what happened uh, with, with him. If you leave a voicemail, for example, that can be forwarded. Uh, uh, have, you, have, you, have you heard of the television show The Sopranos? Yes. The Sopranos? Do you know that show? Do you, do you watch it? You can see it in Brazil. No, or? It's, it's, a, it's a show about the, uh, the mob. Right, but anyway, you know, so they're always doing bad things and they're trying to hide it, but um, they never write anything down. <laughs> they never, you know, send notes or they never leave voicemails. It's always like, uh, uh, give me a call. And then they meet and they, 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 their meetings are like in the middle of nowhere and they just have face-to-face -face conversations and they, they're very cryptic about the things they share. Like, are you gonna do the job? <laughs> Right, and they never so never specific. It's all very um, protected because of this, you know, of the obvious consequences of uh, sharing information. I work with a city agency, uh, and much of the things they have to discuss relate to sensitive information. When they have meetings, nobody takes minutes. Nobody takes minutes until the conclusion is reached, the decision is reached. And that's the only thing that they record, because it's too—it uh, would be too dangerous for them to have it captured. The kinds of things they need to discuss. So that is the first question. You can see how rich this question is. Who are they? Let's talk about. By the way, on your trap test, uh, the the questions that relate. Oh well, that's all of them right there. Actually, is um, one, two, three, and ten are the who are they questions. Let's talk about what do they know and expect. So some of you mentioned this, what do they know and expect? And uh, the, uh, what do they know, what has come up from, you know, from many of you, what do they know about the topic, right? Are they novices, are they experts? Why is it important to know that? Right, how much you need to share. Mm -hmm. What you want to, um, how much you need to educate them so that they feel uh, masterful, right? Uh, if, if they know a lot, then you don't want to start from ground zero because that will, they'll be bored. So uh, what their level of knowledge is about the topic, how much you need to share. And um, what do they expect from the format, right? So, for example, are they expecting just to sit down and have a conversation? Are they expecting a lunch, a lovely lunch, with a, you know, a, a, a meeting over the lunch? Are they expecting you to have visual aids and stand up and talk? What is the format that they're expecting? What often is forgotten in this, uh, in this part, and I'm gonna ask Scott to share uh, in just a moment some information regarding this, is um, 
What do they know about you? What is your credibility with the audience? So let me ask you, how do you evaluate someone's credibility? How do you evaluate someone's credibility? Their resume? Their experience? Say again. Okay, you can Google somebody. Yes, you can. Yes, you can Google them and find out their background. What else? How do you evaluate someone's credibility? Let's make it right. Let's position, title. Let's take it down to right now. What you have heard about the person? What you've heard about the person? Mm -hmm. So, um, what makes somebody credible? Is uh, I'm going to say is a, is a couple of things. One is uh, what you all have mentioned are things that precede you in the moment. Something can somebody can talk about it or write it down. Your resume, your title, your endorsement from a, uh, an institution or an endorsement from an individual. Reputation. Right, reputation. Right. Somebody can write it down or talk about it. That's one bucket of credibility. But there's another bucket of credibility, which is what you create in the moment. So tell me about that. What is, uh, what is that credibility? Presentation. There, is that meaning the way you dress up or dress down? Or yeah, it's all the stuff that is happening in real time. So what are some of the things that you might decide about somebody in real time, in the moment? They are confident about what they are talking about, um, how much data they can manage to um, to show to you, Good. and how much work this person should put in this presentation. Good. So nice. So if they're confident, if they're if they have mastered like their material, they're fluent or they speak fluently. Right? How much work they've done? How much they know about it? How do you decide? I mean, let's let's make this really real. How do you decide if somebody's confident? How do you decide if they're confident? If they convince me. How? How are they doing it? I, I get here. Let's let's imagine this. Let's imagine that I'm an actor, right? And I'm I'm doing in this in this scene. Uh, I need to be confident, right? And you're the directors. And I'm, but I'm a bad actor. I'm like, what should I? What do I do? And then you're going to say, well, Joanne, you have to act confident. Well, I don't know how to do that. Help me. What should I do? What? I'm crossing my eyes. What should I do? Come on, man. Help me out. I'm like, I want to do well, but I don't know what to do. Okay, speak loud. Okay, so this is what. Yeah. So when we get into the nitty gritty components, right? of what makes somebody look confident. And when you dissect it, you, you begin to see that there are real tangible recommendations you can make. Right? So with that being said, I'm going to ask Scott, because this is his bailiwick, to stand up and, and give us a, a few minutes about that look of confidence. You uh, want to explain what bailiwick means? <laughs> <laughs> Does everyone ever heard that word? It means um, uh, area of expertise. <laughs> All right, I've already met all of you this morning. You know what, you've heard me speak already, but if I walked up here right now and was just kind of like this. Joanne, oh. how long do I have to do this for? <laughs> <laughs> what would you feel? Okay, not what do you think of me? 
Or if I came up here and I was like this, um, hi, and I was shaking. Think right now, seriously, not what you'd think of me, not in a judgmental way, but how would you feel if I was standing here right here and going, hi, Hanso, um, I'm Scott, and uh, it's hard. Uh, how would you feel? I mean, you're, you're smiling now, but really think about how you'd feel. Uncomfortable. You'd feel uncomfortable, right? You wouldn't be like, you wouldn't do that. And if you are, you're diseased. I mean, you know what I mean? That's, I mean, you can't, an audience member who would behave that way, it's like, you know, that. But really, so what I'm going to say is this. This is my, to just set the platform, to set the foundation of what I would like to talk about. And I was so excited to come here this morning, and I went on my translator on my phone, and I had, was all set to say this phrase to you. And so I saw my students from Brazil from last year in the hallway, and I said, I'm so excited. I'm going to tell them my, my little key foundation phrase, and I had it already, and I, I went to them, I go, I went, sedia de festa, and they gave me this look that you're all giving me right now. They're like, what does that mean? And I'm like, I have literally played it on my phone 50 times to make sure it's sedia de festa, and they're like, that's not anything. That doesn't mean anything. So I'm just going to say in English, and I'll let you translate it to me how you see it, OK? Do a marker? Do it. This is, this is, to me, the key for the foundation of what we're talking about here today. Okay? Host the party. Now, I guess it's not Sedia de Festa, you know what I mean? And the students downstairs were telling me things to say, but everything was translating to, let's go party, and that's not what I'm saying here, okay? This is, I'm literally, the most important word here is host, okay? So when I talk about how you stand in front of an audience, how, when I, how you listen to people, and my students want a very literal answer. Should I, should I stand like this? Should I, I, I should look like this and, and move to every head? That's not how I teach, because that's, that's too difficult to exist. That's not human to me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I want to give you more of a human thing. So I've come up with this post the party. If, you, if I invited you all to my apartment for a party, what are the behaviors you would have if you were coming into my home? How would I look at the people? How would I prepare for the party? How would I gesture to, well, here's over here is the bar, and we have food over here. I'm happy you're here. How would I speak? It would be the, I wouldn't, if you were in my doorway, I wouldn't be saying, you know, Alfonso, the, the food's right over here. And you know, I wouldn't, you know, I would behave in a certain way. So when you're up in front of an audience and you're concerned about getting the best from them, remember the two things I just showed you, which was, how did you feel when I was very uncomfortable? You felt what Professor Bainey said, empathy, right? And why did you feel empathy? Because you felt uncomfortable. How many times have you been watching a television show where somebody wins an award and they get up there and they, it's a terrible speech and you're not even in the room. You're watching on television, you're going, oh gosh, I wish they would just pull themselves together. How many times have you been in a presentation where the person doesn't seem to think there's an audience there? Doesn't care how you're feeling, doesn't see that people are you know, getting tired or need to stand up or need to recalibrate. So that's what I'm going to say to you today. When we, when we do this exercise this afternoon, and you're trying to think about how you want to stand and how you want to listen to your audience, 
and how you want to speak to your audience, how you want to make eye contact, how you want to gesture, how you want to hold yourself. What if I just was kind of talking to you like this, like this, right? Now, would you do that if I came to your house? No. And how would you respond as a student if I was just sort of like looking out the, at the beautiful view out here and just sort of like this, right? Now, if I suddenly just make a little incremental change of looking into your eyes, speaking in a tone that's appropriate for this room, when you're listening to look someone in the eyes and to act like you understand what they're saying, to actually care that you understand, that's what this exercise will be this afternoon. Okay? So that's the philosophy. And I just always said host the party because I think that's the best image of what it could be. Invite someone into your home. Now, I've done a lot of auditioning in my life. For, you know, I've gone on hundreds of auditions as an actor. And the one thing I learned is this. The actor who comes into the room and has to stand in front of a table of like three people and say, hello, my name is Scott Gardner. And, you know, now I'm Hamlet. You know, I mean, it's a very awkward situation, right? I have command of the room as the actor. They do not. They're the audience. It's my job to put them at, com at comfort. So you as the speaker, it's not the audience's job to make you feel comfortable. It's your job to make the audience feel comfortable. And let me tell you this. The audience, all of you right now, are just mirrors of me. If I came here and acted like I didn't feel like being here, was bored or nervous, that's where I would get back. But if I come here and I say I'm happy to be here, and I am happy to be here, and I'm excited about what I'm saying, and I care about you making sure you understand it, and I hope that it makes sense, and I'm going to listen to what you have to say, that's a very different energy, and that's host the party. Okay? So today, let's talk about our exercise. Can I talk a little about the exercise in the afternoon? We're going to do a form of public speaking, which would be answering a difficult question. You know, sort of being up in front of a room and being asked a question and have to listen, to process, and to answer the question in sort of the steps that Professor Bainey has talked about, right? You know, answering in a way that's clear and concise. So let's just give a few tips. I've got just a few minutes with you. I'll give you a few tips. The first thing, let's talk about listening. When you listen to someone, think about this phrase I read the other day. I loved it. It said, when you're having a hard time concentrating, listening to somebody, when, you're, when your mind may wander, when somebody says something that makes you think of it, replace judgment with curiosity. So when oftentimes I see someone getting a question and they're kind of like almost feeling judgmental of the question and their reaction is to close off. Their reaction is to do this. Be curious. Be curious. When someone is speaking a lot, be curious. Curiosity may be asking a question. Please explain what you're saying. That's interesting. I'm interested in your opinion. Now let me answer that for you. Not defense, not judgment. And by judgment, I mean judging it whether you think that's a dumb question or, you know, this doesn't make any sense, this is off topic, but be interested, be curious. You, you will ve you'll feel your body feel different. You will see a different vision in, your, in the way that you, if you're, when you videotape, because we'll let you uh, tape yourselves on your phone today, when you watch it tonight, if you see yourself listening to questions and you're listening with the intention to be curious, to listen, you will see your body language be different mm -hmm. than sort of this back like this. And uh, the other thing I would say is that when you're answering these questions, 
Let's say you ask me a question. Now, if I just answer you the whole time, I'm just answering your question, and I'm going to keep answering you what you've had to say, and that was a very interesting question. What am I doing now to the rest of you? I'm ignoring you, right? I'm not pulling you in. So one of the things today, we're going to be in much smaller groups in this room. You know, we're going to split this in half, so the most amount of people in the room will be seven. But there's still other people there. So just one tip from Scott G for free, as I say, is this. Always, thank you for that question, begin, and then bring it out to the audience. Okay? Answer to the whole audience. Get their input. Still host the party. If it's a difficult question where someone's being, you know, kind of monopolizing you, it's the best way to sort of <laughs> cut them off. You know, don't keep engaging with them. Do you want me to talk about these things too? Sure. Yeah. If you have someone who's asking difficult questions, if you have someone who's being difficult in a group, what would you say? If you had someone at your party, at your home, and they were being difficult, would you just pay attention to them all night? <laughs> so that everyone's like, well, gee, Scott was with the, you know, drunk Mike over there, whatever, you know what I mean, and obnoxious Mike. You wouldn't do that. So a lot of questions people have for me with public speaking, I say, apply it to your life. How would you behave? Okay? How would you behave? And how would you react if someone's behavior was that? That's the really the key. There's no, this is one thing I hope that you don't think from this session, and we struggle with this when we teach, is there's no magic wand. You know, we can't come in, we can't come in and be like, now this is the key to public speaking, and this is the key to communication. A lot of it you can answer for yourself. I've had students say, well, I was told to look over the audience when I'm speaking to them. And I, the first thing I said was, fire that coach who said that to you. But I said, well, let's, okay, let's do that now. Let me talk over you. How does that make you feel? And they go, oh, I hate it. And I said, well, you just answered your question. So a lot of these things today, when you're answering questions, and you know, you're going to get some difficult questions today, you're going to get provocative questions. You saw the sheet you filled out. Think about that. How will you respond to maintain and host the party? How will you behave? How will you stand? Okay. So those are all theoretical. I'm going to talk about stance really quick right now, and then we'll move on, because I know you're going to talk more about this this afternoon. The thing about stance is this. I come from a place where I've been on very large stages and very small stages. My father was a public speaker. I grew up with it, you know, how to speak correctly. The one thing about stance is if I do this, there's the how do I look, right? What's the other side of it if I'm doing this and trying to speak? Who here has ever publicly spoken or sings or does anything like that? Does anybody have any performance in their life? All right. If I do this, I'm closing off my breathing. If I stand just like this, I'm able to get good breath in. My voice will be less shaky. I'll be less nervous. Your body reacts to how you behave. This literally starts to make me feel defensive. This makes me feel open. So I want to see this afternoon when we do this exercise, for you to walk up to that front of that room and host the party and stand there in a way that elongates yourself, opens you up so you can get good breath, comfortable with making eye contact, and the minute you feel insecure about it, the minute you feel, you know, we all get that, we're like, God, they're all looking at me right now. This is making me very uncomfortable. I, I will just admit this, I like it. <laughs> like, I, I like being on stage, and, and I know that's just, I mean, I'm not gonna sit here and lie about that, I want, but I'm gonna try to be empathetic and sensitive to the fact that most people don't. Yeah. 
Well, I just like it. I mean, I've always, <laughs> I've always liked it as a kid. You know what I mean? But I realize what I don't. I don't want to think that I'm normal that way. <laughs> I think most people are uncomfortable. So what I will say is this: the minute you start to feel that awkwardness when you're looking at someone and you, is to again, host the party, have the curiosity, have the empathy, and your body language should mirror that. Your body language will mirror it. Is that? You say to yourself, "I am the host." I am the host. I'm happy you're here. There's a. Gosh, I wish I would have made a copy of it. Maybe we can do it during the, during the break. Um, there's, a, there's a woman, her name is Dorothy Sarnoff. And she was one of, she was a Broadway actress in the 50s. She just died a few years ago at like 97, 98 years. She was very old. But she became, which is a great job for actors, public speaking coach. You know, and one of the premier ones. She worked with presidents and she worked with big time corporations. And one of the things she said, and I won't probably get it exactly right, which was this theory of host a party. It was like, coming into the energy of the room with this, with this, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here. I know that I know. And I forget the fourth one. And I'll find it for you during the break. But it's that energy of like, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad to be here, and I know that I know. And guess what? And this will be, you know, I could go on for days about this, but the last thing I'll say is this. One thing I've learned as an actor, and one thing I hope you all learn in your business, in your lives with communication, whether it's making a presentation in front of your company, whether it's going on a job interview, whether it's at a board meeting, whether it's a blind date, whatever it is where you're communicating, I hope you understand and remember one thing, that the audience that's listening to you is on your side. They want you to do well, even when they're antagonistic, even when they're asking difficult. They want you to do well because it makes them feel comfortable. So I've been in difficult meetings. I've been in things where people, I'm like, ooh, this is getting uncomfortable. What will serve you better, to host the party or to be antagonistic back? Host the party. So that's what I hope you just, in our short time, we wish we could spend the summer with you. You know, we love, we love this. We really do. We had such a great time with the last two years with the groups from Brazil. And we really, we were saying today, we wish we could just do all summer with you and go through this course. But if you take anything away from what I'm saying, host the party and remember that the audience is on your side much more than you really give them credit for. And it's up to you to make sure that that mirror image comes back positive. Okay? I'm going to get much more specific with my group this afternoon about literal stances and gestures and everything like that. That's a boring lecture. I'd rather do it in real time to show we can example with each other. So if you don't mind, I'd rather just, you know, we'll talk about it. Obviously, we, you know, you want to stand well, you want to make eye contact, you don't want to gesture wildly. But I think that's a coachable thing. So Professor Bainey will be with one half of the group in here. I'll be next door with the other half. And we'll do it as coaching. Good? All right, thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, so um, so it gives you a little flavor of what we're going to do this afternoon, right? We're going to be like all, you're all going to have a chance to, to practice a lot of the skills we're talking about and really think about the elements we've spoken about already with uh, making messages memorable, audience analysis, identifying your intention as well. I want to finish up with these final two questions before we break for lunch, but I want to just add on very quickly um, to reinforce something that Scott was sharing regarding the, the uh, impact of your behavior as a, uh, as a communicator. And to do that, I'm going to share with you a statistic, a set of statistics 
by a gentleman named um, Albert Morabian. He's a professor at the University of Southern California. That's A for Albert. And uh, these statistics are, he's a sociologist, and what he studies is the impact of nonverbal and vocal uh, behavior on interpersonal communication. So I want to share with you a, uh, this is going to be a pie chart. And this is a pie chart of interpersonal communication. Interpersonal, I'm not going to write out the whole word. Right? Come. Interpersonal communication. So everyone knows that pie charts add up to 100%, right? So this is going to add up to 100%, and it's going to have three pieces to it. So let me share with you what those three pieces are going to be. First is nonverbal communication. Nonverbal communication. Much of this Scott has already mentioned. But when we are, uh, you know, interacting in an interpersonal situation, what are some components of nonverbal communication? So nothing verbal, nothing vocal, just nonverbal. What are some pieces of nonverbal communication? Facial expression, your gestures, your body language, which could be gestures, but it could also be what? Your stance or your posture, right? What else? Your eye contact, your, what did you say? Your clothes. Yeah, by the way, that's a, a real, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a, a very powerful one. I mentioned that I work with the police department and the fire department, and boy, when they're in their uniforms, that uniform walks into the room 10 minutes before they do, right? It's so powerful. So dress, stance, posture, gestures, eye contact, facial expression, all of those are nonverbal. Very good, we've defined that. Now we're going to separate verbal from vocal. So I'll go ahead and define verbal for you. Verbal are the actual words that you say. The actual words that you say. So if you were, if you were in, in the courtroom and uh, you were on the stand and the court reporter was taking down your testimony, the words that would appear on that transcript would be your verbal testimony, right? The words that you say. So if verbal are the words that you say, what would vocal be? What are some component parts of vocal? Tone, very good, tone. Mumbling, what else? Speaking quickly or slowly, your speed. Volume, loud or soft, very good. Pitch, uh, gen generally speaking, men have lower pitched voices than women, have higher pitched voices. Intonation, the highs and lows, right, the vocal energy. Hmm? Well, again, that's going to get into the verbal. Right. So verbal is the words you say. Vocal is the sound of it. Okay. All right. So we've defined them. We have nonverbal. We have vocal. We have verbal. Let's, uh, let's put them all into this, uh, this pie chart. What percentage of interpersonal communication do you think comes through nonverbal communication? Nonverbal, that is stance, gestures, eye contact, facial expression, dress, etc. What percentage of this pie chart do you think comes from that? At least 60%. 60%. Very bold. I like it. Anyone else? Yeah, I mean, you guys are, are you're, you're right on, you know, on point there. It's 55%. 55% is nonverbal. You've already defined that. 
So we have 45% left. We're going to divide it between verbal and vocal. What percentage of this do you think is vocal? That is volume, rate, pitch, enunciation, filler words, mumbling, from, intonation. From 100 or from this 45%? From, from the 45. 35. 30, 35? 35. 35. It's, uh, it's 38%. 38% is vocal. So mathematicians, what's left? <laughs> 7%. 7 percent. Seven percent. Now, 7%. So what, what will you conclude from this? Now, the thing is that um, you know, this is for all interpersonal communication. It isn't just for presentations or meetings or whatever. I mean, the numbers may, may move around. Uh, and so in a presentation, maybe your verbal, the, the component is maybe it's twice this. Maybe it's three times this. Maybe it's four times. Let's say it's four times, which is like, wow, four times. So let's say this is 28%. Just let's imagine that. You can still see how powerful these pieces are, right? Yes. These are, they win. They win. So that's why your nonverbal, your behavior, and your vocal presentation is so critical. When you are doing a presentation, when you are managing a meeting, when you are involved in an interview, right? That's why these pieces are so powerful, because they win. They win over the verbal testimony. So ideally, ideally, the nonverbal and vocal are going to create a really powerful, strong foundation to support the verbal, the, the verbal component. Because if they compete, they will win. If they compete, they will win. So you want them to support it. Go ahead, Scott. Oh, I was just going to say quickly, one of the things that we do with our students during the semester is I send them the video of the Kennedy-Nixon debate. 1960 President Kennedy and the future President Nixon. And one of the things on that you learn is that it was the first time it was televised. Can I tell this really quickly? Yeah. First time it was televised, and it really goes to this theory of what not what they were saying, because mm -hmm. Kennedy won that debate to the television audiences. He looked amazing. He wore makeup. He went and got a tan. He had a good suit on. Nixon was ill, he wore a bland suit, sweating, <laughs> didn't look trusting. But people on the radio, where there was a different medium, the theory was that they thought Nixon had won. Mm -hmm. So the idea that these things are important, and when we ask you about holistic preparation for a presentation or whatever you're doing, people put so much mm -hmm. on the verbal, what I'm writing, my text, they don't think about how they want to say it and how they want to not verbally present themselves. So this is very, I hope you take a picture of this, this is very important. <laughs> uh, okay, let's, um, let's just move on to talk about these, these next two because I want to touch on them. Uh, so third, third question is, uh, what do they feel? Now, the what do they feel question, I, I'll let you know that when I have taught this at the business school uh, over here at Columbia and the other business schools I've taught at, I don't even use this word. I don't use the word feel 
because a lot of uh, a lot of people that I've, I've learned that their reaction is that they don't want to admit that feelings have such powerful impact. So I will say, how will they respond? The truth of the matter is, though, it's feelings. How does your audience feel? How do they feel about you? How do they feel about the topic? How do they feel about what you're asking of them? So, you know, people's emotions are powerful drivers to how they're going to absorb information and also accept you. And so you want to ask yourself that question. How is the audience going to feel about what I'm saying? Am I asking them to do something difficult? Is the topic controversial? Am I credible to this audience? Are they going to feel good about me? And when you, you know, kind of let, let that all distill into how they're going to feel, if your audience feels positive about you and the topic, which is really most of the time, as Scott said, most, most of the time it's, you know, at, at worst it's a neutral situation, if not a friendly situation, that's 95% of the time, then you would use what I would call a direct structure, which I told you before, you just let them know what you're there to talk about and you're real transparent about it. In the circumstance where your audience is negatively, uh, feels negatively towards you, or towards the topic or what you're asking of them, then you would want to use an indirect structure, which means you have to build credibility throughout your presentation or document or you know whatever, and then hit them with your recommendations at the end. You don't lead with recommendations. It will be too jarring if you do. So how your audience feels has a great bearing on how you're going to structure your argument. If you have credibility and your audience is neutral or positive towards you, Direct structure, lead with your recommendations or conclusions. If you have no credibility, your audience is negatively inclined towards the topic, then you need to build your argument and finish, conclude with your recommendations. Is that, is that making sense? So it all has to do with once you evaluate the feelings of your audience, that's going to impact how you, how you create your argument, how you, how you structure and formulate your argument. Okay. Um, then let's move into persuasion. This is just such an enormous topic. Uh, there are so many books about persuasion and influence. And um, if you've ever you know, done any reading about persuasion and influence, then you probably have a sense of really how, how very, very many there are. But I want to recommend to you one particular book, which I think is a very powerful one. And It's by a gentleman named Robert Cialdini. He teaches at the University of Arizona. And his, uh, his book is called Influence, The Science of Persuasion. Now, everybody's gonna buy it. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm it's such a good book. I think it's in its seventh edition. So what I wanna tell you about this book is, um, I've read all seven editions, they're all, really a lot alike. So if you do buy it, it doesn't matter which edition you buy. You go onto Amazon, you can buy it for a penny. You can buy you know, edition one for a penny. So go ahead and do that, because they really aren't that much different. But what I will tell you about this book is um, it's very readable, it's very entertaining, so much so that, and this is true, I gave it to my brother for Christmas. It's that much fun to read that I could pass it off as a legitimate Christmas gift to my brother. Uh, and what he does in this, in this book 
is he talks about what I will call reflexive responses to, um, you know, to different techniques, to different persuasive techniques. Uh, reflexive responses means that they are unchecked. They are visceral responses. We can't help ourselves but to react to these different um, uh, persuasive techniques. So one of them is uh, called reciprocation. And this is, uh, again, I guess engendered in us from well, all cultures probably respond to reciprocation. And the, uh, the strength of reciprocation, uh, well, is that if you do something for someone else, they are inclined to reciprocate. It feels wrong if you don't reciprocate, right? It's a reflexive response. We feel like it's the right thing to do. So as a communicator, what does that mean for you? about how you can be more persuasive. Knowing that, that people are inclined to reciprocate, what does that mean for you as a, somebody who is looking to persuade or influence? How can you use that in your favor? As you said before, you be nice, It's the perfect, uh, perfect example of reciprocation is honor the room, right? If you lay yourself out, you know, put yourself out there as I appreciate you, uh, the audience can't help but to be like, oh, that was really nice, right? So that works in your favor. You are more persuasive and influential just because you've done that one thing. So that's an example of uh, reciprocation. Authority is another one of the persuasive um, elements that he describes in this book. And that is that we are inclined to respond favorably to, uh, to people who seem to express authority. They are authorities. So what are some ways that we decide if someone is an authority? Their reputation. Their title. Maybe they are, uh, you know, um, acknowledged by an institution or by an individual that has some kind of credibility. Those are all measures of authority. You go to the doctor's office. Do you? Does it matter to you that the doctor has uh, credentials on the wall? Yeah. It matters to me. What else does the doctor tend to wear? What does she walk in the room with? White lab, right? Yeah. Or a stethoscope? <laughs> <laughs> what are those? Those are signals of authority. I know how to use this. <laughs> I wear, I'm wearing a white lab coat, right? I talked about the firefighters, uh, the fire chiefs, and the precinct commanders that I work with. That uniform, right? Symbol of authority. And they, you know, they say to me all the time, Joanne, if I'm walking down the street dressed as a regular civilian, and I say to people, like, don't walk, you know, don't go there, or don't do that, people are like, screw you. <laughs> but when they're in their uniform, they're like, yes, <laughs> I will do whatever you say. So symbols of authority. So what does that mean for you as, a, as somebody who's looking to persuade and influence? How can you use that, that information? You have to make sure your audience is aware of your credibility, your title, your background, reputation. And ideally, you don't have to tell them that yourself, because that's a little awkward, but somebody maybe tells them for you. What else does it mean? to dress the part. You have to dress the part. 
right? Don't give, don't, don't um, give your audience another hurdle to get over. Dress the part, because people respond very quickly to the, the image that they see. So make it easy for them, right? Dress the part. So one of the uh, lessons from theater that I know Scott would share with you as well, and one that I, I know too, and that is when, uh, when you're in, uh, in, a, in a show, you know, an actor, that props and costumes are your biggest friend because they tell the audience who you are, props and costumes. So you just want to take advantage, that's just a reality. Props and costumes. Um, the last one I'll share with you is, uh, there, there are many in the book, and the, you know, if you read it, you'll uh, you get an understanding of all of them. But the last one I will share with you is called liking theory. Liking theory, and the two components of liking theory are that, well, the, 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 the essence of liking theory is that it is more comfortable to agree with people that we like than it is to disagree with them. It feels better to agree with people that we like than it does to disagree with them. So what makes somebody likable? There are two components to it. One is that they're nice, they're just likable. What makes someone nice and likable? They, they, they uh, compliment people. They, they pay attention to Very nice. They have good interpersonal connection. Um, they, are, um, they are, you know, uh, gracious. Uh, so that makes somebody likable. But then there's also a component of um, you, we like people who are similar to us. Similarity. And in the silliest ways, we are influenced by somebody's similarity. And honestly, in the silliest ways, and compliance professionals use this all the time. Uh, for example, my name is Joanne Bainey. Now, my initials are JB. Weirdly, and this is true for everyone, I will be more drawn to somebody with those initials because they are similar. It's not, it's not conscious, but we are drawn to people who are like us in certain ways. Um, I'm from uh, a family, I have two older brothers. Just luck of the draw, right? I, will, I, however, feel an affinity to someone who comes from a similar family structure. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There are a lot of nice people in Pittsburgh. There are a lot of jerks in Pittsburgh. But when I meet somebody from Pittsburgh, I'm like, oh, hey, wow, you're from Pittsburgh. Too. I like them. <laughs> and it's true, for, it's true for all of us. So compliance professionals are very good at using this information. They look for connections, right? It could be any, any small thing. Uh, went to the same school, like the same football team. Right? Have um, the same shoes. It just could be very, very small. But those kinds of similarity, those connections, they drop defenses and they create a connection. Thank you for joining us on this Columbia University Comunitas Public Management Podcast. Please join us for other podcasts here on this website.